Well, thank you for having me here for another Lord's Day morning. It's a real privilege to be here and honor to preach the word. Our church, Grace Baptist, again, sends her greetings to you. Do know that we continue to pray for Pastor Joey and praying for you all as well. I'm going to begin this morning by reading the sermon text and then by opening with a word of prayer. The sermon text comes from Acts chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts 1, beginning in verse 9 down to 11. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father, you indeed are worthy as we just sang. And I pray you give us all eyes to see your beauty, your glory. I pray that you quiet our souls after this past week. I pray for attentiveness. I pray, Lord, for those who may be listening who are lost, who are seeking their way. I pray that you will draw them to yourself even this morning. I pray for those in Christ that you will point us to the glory of this text, this doctrine we just read about, and that will grow in our understanding of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Is the microphone sounding okay? Okay. All right. So, the ascension is what we just read about, Acts 1. And this ascension, this doctrine, should play a major role role in our lives, and that's my, that's my main point, really, this evening. Um, before we get there, I, <clears throat> I think that one of the most convicting verses in all of Scripture, at least for me, is when Paul says that he desires to depart and be with Christ. Paul was so comfortable in his faith, he was so comfortable with the prospect of heaven that he was comfortable dying. In fact, he said that he preferred it. Why does he stay on earth? He says, it's better, and he's speaking to the Philippians in this case, it's better for you all that I stay, that I may be here for your joy and for the building of your faith. He was comfortable dying. And how many of us, especially in America with the comforts we have, the money, the houses, whatever it is you have, no, not everyone in America has a comfortable life, but comparatively speaking, how many of us can say with Paul, I desire to depart and be with Christ? He was ready at that moment. He was sincere in that moment. A friend of mine last week came up to me and he said, yeah, my son, he, he just said, this kid's about seven, he said, uh, 
yeah, dad, I, I'm, I'm ready to die. And, you know, parent it might startle you for a second. What do you mean? He said, well, I think there's going to be better toys in heaven. <laughs> well, that's logical, isn't it? With one of my own children, I was describing heaven and the realities of, and the beauty within heaven. And I began describing all of these different things. And my child, putting the dots together, when I got done speaking, he said, well, I want to die. And again, something childlike about that answer, but something also logical about that answer. When you consider where we are in this world, this broken, disease-ridden, war-ridden, sin-ridden world, why are we comfortable here? In another sense, we could say we are not at home in this world, especially because Christ is not here. This is what we just read about this morning. Acts 1, he gathers his disciples, and then he is taken up, the scriptures say, into heaven. The same event is in Mark, it's in Luke. Many of the New Testament letters speak of this. Even in the Old Testament, we read about this. It's foretold. And when we look at how often the ascension is mentioned in the Bible, we must recognize this is an essential doctrine. It's good to speak about the birth of Christ. It's good to speak about the death of Christ, the resurrection from the dead. It's good to speak about Christ's second coming. Each event is crucial. But the ascension is just as fundamental, we might say. It is a link in the chain that often goes missing, and that is to the church's detriment. If we lose sight of it, we lose sight of all that Christ has for us. One of the earliest church documents, the Apostles' Creed, speaks of this doctrine. The Apostles' Creed, you may recall, it speaks, a number, it speaks of a number, I think 12 to be exact, of the events in Christ's life. You may recognize some of these words. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The Apostles' Creed is sure to include this. It is a link that cannot go missing. Our forefathers in the faith also made much of this doctrine. Augustine speaks of its centrality. Spoke of the ascension a lot, actually. The great English reformer, John Owen, did too. Owen, for instance, says this, the assumption of our Lord Jesus Christ into glory, we might say the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into glory, his glorious reception in heaven is a principal article of the faith of the church, the great foundation of its hope and consolation in this world. So listen to that. The ascension is the great foundation. It's our consolation in this world. The ascension consoles us. It comforts us to know Christ is in heaven and that he accomplished our salvation. Another writer, Andrew Murray, speaks of the pillars of the church, and he says the ascension is the last, the most wonderful, the crown of all the rest. Now, these are theologians categorizing things, and we may quibble, but one thing is for sure, we cannot miss this one. And so the main idea I want to come across this morning is that the ascension of Christ should strengthen your faith. Jesus is Lord, and he's not just the crucified Lord. He's the risen Lord. But even beyond the risen Lord, 
He's the ascended Lord. So let's consider this doctrine first from Acts 1, and then we'll piece this doctrine together using some other texts. So, Jesus, repeatedly, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to kind of lay out what is the ascension, and then I'm going to give some benefits. So really, now, what is the ascension? Explain that doctrinally, and then we'll get into some benefits. Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples that he would be killed, and the disciples, they have a hard time believing this at times, don't they? And Jesus also repeatedly told them that he would ascend to the Father. This is what we've just read about. So first, the ascension happens, and when we think of the ascension, we can think of it really as this simple event. It is the event in which the resurrected Jesus rises into the realm of the Father, rises into the realm of heavenly glory. You'll notice in our text this morning in Acts 1, you'll notice this is the beginning of the book. This book tells the story of the first Christians to live after Jesus' death and resurrection, Verses 1 to 8, we read a summary of the events that that take place after Jesus died, after he rose from the dead. And then this verse, verse 9, we're centered on right now, we read about the ascension. And take note that this event, it bridges the life and ministry of Jesus and the life and ministry of the church. Acts is a book that tells the story of the church spreading, going forth. So what is the bridge? It's the ascension. It's foundational, if you will, for the church's ministry. Verse 9, when Jesus had spoken these things, they watched. He was taken up. A cloud, take note, a cloud received him out of their sight. Now this is from the vantage point of the disciples They see him go up. They see it from the ground. But the real glory of this thing, we might say, is what they do not see. The true significance is what what happens on the other side of the cloud. The text says Jesus entered into a cloud. A cloud receives him. But surely this is not just any cloud. We aren't told a lot, but we know this cloud is not just a mere cloud. Think about other clouds you might read about in scripture when the israelites are being led out of egypt and into the promised land what is it that leaves them well at one point it's a cloud at another point it's a pillar of fire in fact when they cross the red sea the egyptians are chasing god's people and it is a cloud that god uses to shield the israelites it is a cloud of protection You've heard of a hedge of protection. How about a cloud of protection? That's what it was. A cloud of protection between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So what is this cloud that we see in Acts 1? I think another clue is in Luke. Remember when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, he goes up and he sees these figures. He takes with him James and John and Peter, and he sees Elijah. He sees Moses. And while he was saying these things to the disciples, a cloud came and overshadowed them. So what is this cloud all about? James and John and Peter, they're fearful as they enter the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet, they told no one. 
What is the cloud? Well, I think we can at least say that when Jesus is received up into the cloud, he is being received into the presence of God. There's more going on. Jesus does not go up into the cloud because he needs protection. He goes up to the realm of the Father. But now what's going on on the other side? We see it from the disciples' standpoint. What's going on on the other side? We read in Philippians that Jesus, after being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What happens after? God highly exalts him, gives him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Jesus is given a new name. When? When he ascends. It's after the death. It's after the resurrection. It's when he ascends that he receives this new name. In Revelation, we read about this. When Jesus is ascended, we read that Jesus has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. When Jesus ascends, that's when he takes his crown. That's when he is crowned king. We could say, in some sense, that when the crown of thorns was put across him and they put a a sign above him that said the king of the Jews, was he king then? Yes, he was king. But the king was not yet victorious. The king, victorious, is the king ascended. His enemies tried to convince him to sin, but Jesus refused. He overcame. His enemies are now, we might say, his footstool. We just sang Psalm 2. We read about Jesus' footstool in that very psalm. If Jesus has a footstool, he must have a seat. No one stands on a footstool. At least they shouldn't. A victorious person takes his seat. He has a footstool, and this is what Jesus does. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. And if you sit down, it means your work is done. My dad, when he got home from work, he would come. My dad, first of all, he, he, had, to, he had to tuck in his shirt at work. He had one of those jobs, factory job. He would come home. My dad, what do you do when you get home? Well, you, if you're a man, you... You untuck your shirt. It's kind of like you earn that right. I'm home, untucking my shirt. What's the next thing you do? Workday's finished. There's my chair. It's my chair. I'm going to go sit down. Work is over. It's finished. So when Jesus sits, it's as if he untucks his shirt, isn't it? He's done. Not only that, he, he sits down. Where does he sit? the right hand of the Father. He's King of kings, Lord of lords. This is what it means when, he, when we read that Jesus is ascended. It means that Jesus is victorious. It's Jesus the triumphant. And if we lose this doctrine, we lose a little bit of that flavor, don't we? We want this flavor in the church. We want this Jesus is triumphant in the church. Now from here, there are a number of benefits for us. As John Owen has said and others have said, this truth is a great consolation. It's a great comfort. So with the rest of our time this morning, I'm just going to cover three benefits of this doctrine. And these benefits are not original to me. 
These can be found in the Heidelberg Catechism or in the Orthodox Baptist Catechism. There you can find really these same things. I add to them a little bit. But three benefits of our ascended Lord. The first benefit of Jesus being ascended is this. Jesus ascends to to prepare a place for us in heaven. Jesus ascends to prepare a place for us in heaven. That's the first benefit. In John, this is a curious thing. Um, We'll get to that in a moment. In John, Jesus says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And this is when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus prepares a place for us. We could also say that Jesus paves the way for us into heaven. And take note. This is unchartered territory for man. No man had yet gone to heaven. Jesus is the first. No human flesh had ever ascended to heaven to be in God's very abode. The saints of old, when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom, or Sheol, you might say. It was a resting place. Christ had not yet paved the way for human flesh It is only after Christ that mankind is able to enter into God's very immediate abode. And again, this is what Jesus prays for in John 17. Jesus praying to the Father just before he goes to the cross, and he prays for his disciples. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. He wants us with him. And that's the glory of this doctrine, that we may be with him. In the incarnation, God came and he dwelt with man. When we use that word, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus being fully God, being fully man, or we might say Jesus being truly God, truly man, it's God coming to earth to dwell with man. Now, think about this event, the ascension. This is quite the reverse, isn't it? It's man going to heaven to be with God. Man goes to where God dwells. Before this, no flesh could be in God's sight. Think of Adam and Eve. When they sin, what do they do? They hide. Even more, they're banished from the garden. No man can look upon God and live The Heidelberg Catechism says that that the fact that Jesus' flesh is in heaven, this is a a sure pledge. It's kind of like he's proving to us, man can get to heaven. We might assume that. But this is the first time it happens. Garrett Scott Dawson, a Reformed theologian, says this, the continuing humanity of Christ is the pattern and guarantee of the glorified humanity that awaits us. It's the same idea. Humanity can get into heaven now. Jesus enters the presence of God, first man to do so. 
Ephesians speaks to this. This is a familiar passage. I believe Pastor Ryan spoke to you last week about union with Christ. And if that union with Christ is a reality for you, it's not just that you're saved, it's that you're raised up with Christ. Listen to this from Ephesians. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together with Christ. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. So this is your future, Christian, that you will be in heaven one day, but it's also your present. In some sense of the word, and this is mysterious, but in some sense of the word, you're already seated with Christ. This is Ephesians language. You're already seated with Christ in heaven. He's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're already up there. Athanasius says, he for our sake became man, so we for his sake become exalted. There's this great reversal, isn't there? And Calvin, last quote, says this, this is the wonderful exchange which out of his measure, measureless benevolence, he has made with us. That becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. All these church fathers pick up on this doctrine and they put it at the forefront. By his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us again, again, and again. Put this, Christian, put this doctrine Put this doctrine deep into your hearts. It's meant to be there. You're meant to see yourself, not just on earth, but already in heaven. Even more, Paul picks up on this same doctrine, and this is his appeal. Why should we behave like Christians? Why should we behave unlike the world? It's because you're already heavenly citizens. In Colossians, before Paul leads us into all of these, do this and do that, he gives the foreground, and the foreground is this very doctrine. Colossians 3, if then you were raised with Christ, so listen to that, if you were raised with Christ, that's his appeal, if you were raised with Christ, and then he tells us what to do. Why? Why do I not steal? Why do I not lie? Why do I not commit adultery? Paul's, Paul's point is because you have already been raised into a different world. If you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. And then he goes on and gives us exhortations. And he says they're earthly things, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. These are earthly things. But as the elect, as the raised, we have different priorities. So when Jesus says he goes to prepare a place for us, this is in part what he means. Jesus doesn't simply go to prepare a mansion for us as if he's building it all these years. That's not the point. The point is he is our forerunner. He paves the way. He makes it possible for humanity to live 
and dwell and bask in the glory of God. Second point, Jesus ascends to God to act as our great high priest. This is the second benefit. Jesus ascends to God to act as our great high priest. When Jesus goes into heaven, he doesn't just peek over the gates. He's not hanging out on the periphery of God's house, nor does he have some level of distance from God like Moses did. Remember Moses? He shielded inside the rocks as God passed him by. Jesus not only enters heaven, he goes behind the veil. This is where the priests go. And Jesus can do this because he is a priest. He's the greatest of priests. And when he goes into the Holy of Holies, he goes as one who has offered the final sacrifice. That's what priests do. They mediate. Priests go between God and mankind. They offer sacrifices, and Jesus does this. And note that he does this upon his ascension. It's not before. It's upon his ascension. He ascends to the Father, having made the great sacrifice. And when he appears in heavenly glory, he appears as one who has shed his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. Israel's high priests offered sacrifices regularly on behalf of the people. Jesus offers something better. As Hebrew says, a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and he has become higher than the heavens. Notice that language in Hebrews. Higher than the heavens. It's when Jesus became higher than the heavens that he became great high priest. It's when he has become higher than the heavens that he presents himself to God on your behalf. So Jesus, as the God-man, now the great high priest, not only is he the sacrifice, he is the advocate now with the Father. And he's not some distant figure. Jesus knows his sheep by name. If he advocates for you, he does that by name. Even more, Jesus advocates for you as one who can sympathize. Again, Hebrews. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So Jesus sympathizes with us. So when he advocates, when he's sympathetic, it's after the ascension. Note in this verse too, it's the same doctrine. It's when he passed through the heavens that he advocates. The author of Hebrews is making this point very clear, even more. Jesus does not advocate for you by recalling all your deeds before the throne. If you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about that. When Jesus advocates before the Father on your behalf, he's not bringing up what you did. He's bringing up what he's done. If he brought up what you did, if he brought up what I did, it'd be unacceptable. It'd be defenseless. For we are all guilty. So what does Jesus do? As your advocate, he pleads his own blood. He advocates for you by pointing to his righteousness, so you must be unified to him. Paul speaks of this matter triumphantly 
And this is part of my point this morning, is that this ascension leads us into a triumphant sort of faith. Listen to Paul from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, do you hear this? It's always connected in the scriptures. The ascended Lord. What shall separate you from the love of Christ? And Paul's answer is, Jesus is ascended. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. And this news is even sweeter because it's not temporary. Hebrews again goes on. This is forever. This priesthood is forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then thirdly, last benefit of the ascension is Jesus ascends that the Spirit may come. Jesus ascends that the Spirit may come. Jesus says that it was to the church's advantage that he goes away. And the disciples have a hard time with this, but he actually tells them, he says, it's to your advantage, it's to your benefit that I go away. And there's a number of benefits. I'm going to list some, and then we're going to turn to another scripture to illustrate this point. The Spirit, we could say, convicts sinners. The Spirit draws sinners to righteousness. That's what we read about in John 16. The Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me. It's part of what the Spirit does. The Spirit also guides them in truth. This again is John 16. He will guide. What else does the Spirit do? He prays on our behalf. It's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit gives gifts to the church, apostles and teachers, preachers. And the Spirit helps us accomplish the Great Commission, or we could say the Spirit accomplishes the Great Commission. If you notice, when is the ascension? Well, in Luke and in Acts, the ascension is situated in such a way that it's right after the Great Commission. The disciples are given this wonderful task, this great task, and they may be thinking, how? How can we go out into all the world making disciples of all nations when Jesus is going to go away to the Father? And Jesus tells them, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That's how. It is better for him to go away. By going, by going away, Jesus also proves to us that his, that his kingdom is not physical. It's a spiritual kingdom. People were constantly, constantly trying to take Jesus and make him an earthly king. He could make bread. And they say, hey, this guy can make bread. Well, then what else can he do for us? Is he going to restore the kingdom to us now? But Jesus would have to escape when Peter chops the ear off. He has to tell them, or he has to heal. He has to heal the enemy. Peter tries to, to, to make an earthly army with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. 
I'm going to ascend to the Father. My kingdom is not of this world. So those are three benefits of the ascension. My point again this morning is to make this central. Let's close, though, by looking at Psalm 24. I'm going to look at Psalm 24 and make an appeal. In Psalm 24, we see an ascension of sorts. You look at verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. There are gates. Imagine a castle that you cannot get into. And so you make a command to whoever's controlling the gates. You say, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And then they ask, well, who is this king of glory? And then you say, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And commentators have had a hard time. There's some debate about where do we situate this psalm historically. Is this about David? Is this about Jesus? Who is this about, Psalm 24? I think ultimately we could say it's about the doctrine that we just spoke about. Ultimately, Psalm 24 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For if we look back in Psalm 24, especially verse 3 and verse 4, look there with me. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? So this is what the psalmist wants. He wants to get up on top of that hill. What's up there? What's on top of this hill? This is a metaphor, of course, but figuratively speaking, what's on top of the hill? It's the Lord. It's the hill of the Lord. So let us get on top of this hill. This is the ascent. Who may stand in his holy place? Well, now this is, this is a problem, isn't it? Because verse 4 tells us who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Which of you has clean hands and a pure heart? Which of us is going to ascend? None of us will ascend. Could David ascend? Which figure in the Bible could ascend? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. We might say that the Christian faith requires requires a certain level of humility. Everyone, every one of us who calls themselves a Christian, we've admitted we're needy, haven't we? Even more than being needy, we're bad. And Christians, true born-again Christians, we admit this. It is part of the entrance exam. This is the fundamental question that underlies the entrance into the church. Let me ask you another question. Are you a male or a female? Is that on the entrance exam? No. doesn't matter. You can be either male or female to enter the kingdom of heaven. Sounds like a strange question to us, but there was a time where people asked that. Another question. Are you a Jew or a Gentile? doesn't matter. It's not on the exam. You can be either. You can be Jew or Gentile. 
Are you rich or poor? It doesn't matter. That's not on the exam. What's on the exam? Are you a sinner? Many will not admit. So let's look back at verse 4. If you are a sinner, can you ascend the hill of the Lord? No. You cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. You will never make it up the hill. You will never ascend to where Christ is. So what must happen? How will you ascend? You may go up there. You may knock. Lift up your heads, O you gates. You're not getting in the gates. Not the gates of heaven. So how will you ascend? You must cling to Christ. He will put you on his back. He will take you up the hill. That's the only way. This ascension that we read about in Scripture again and again and again, it's a lofty goal. It's a metaphor, but it's meant to be this unsurmountable sort of goal that we have. And the picture that we are supposed to receive from this is no one is going to ascend except the one who gets favor from God. And Christ goes in, and I imagine that in Acts, which we just read, as the disciples are standing there and they're watching Jesus go up into heaven, that's a glorious thing. And then these angels appear before them, and they say, hey, men of Galilee, what are you looking at? This same Jesus, he's going to come back. It's kind of a rebuke, isn't it? It's kind of, it's kind of, it seems almost harsh when you read that in Acts. What are they doing? What are they doing there? I think in part, it is a bit of a rebuke, but they've just seen this glorious thing, and maybe they don't believe their eyes. It's like, uh, is, is he going to stay up there? Is he going to come back down? I suspect they genuinely wondered. So they needed angelic confirmation, and these angels come over, and they say, hey, he's ascended. One day, he's going to come back. And then the idea is, now you have the Great Commission, so go forth making disciples of all nations. And that's what the rest of the books of Acts is about, making disciples of all nations. So from the disciples' vantage point, they see this glorious thing. But even more glorious, I think, is what goes on on the other side of the cloud. And I imagine, if you will, there were angels up there thinking of this very psalm. Who is this king of glory? They see him coming. Who is this king of glory? And then they know who it is. They say it's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So even the angels perhaps said, lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. Jesus. He is the king of glory. Let's pray to him. Lord, we are grateful for this doctrine of the ascension, and I pray it will make our way into our hearts. And I pray that you will stir up this church to love and to good works, stir our church, Grace Baptist, up into love and good works. And I pray that this doctrine, this truth of Jesus ascended will have a salty effect in us. I pray it will humble us, but I pray also it will energize us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.